I echo Chris's words. I hope that that was your prayer as we do come to the Word and that we would be fed by the Word of God this morning. I invite you to open up your Bibles to the book of Romans, particularly Romans chapter 1. We'll find ourselves in verses 16 through 17. This is a very short passage, but yet is full with rich truth for us to consider this morning. The Apostle Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul begins this section of Romans. This is, is if you wanted to con- condense the book of Romans into two sentences, here it is. Paul's kind of given a summary of what he's going to um, explain throughout the rest of the letter. But he begins here in verse 16 by boldly declaring that he is not ashamed of the gospel. As one preacher insightfully noted on these verses, he says, there's no sense in declaring that you're not ashamed of something unless you've been tempted to feel ashamed of it. And I can sense that Paul probably felt that way, always reminding himself, I must not be ashamed of the gospel. And if you're familiar with the Apostle Paul's life, you can understand why he may have been tempted to be ashamed of it. To the Corinthians, Paul wrote, and he said, When I came to you and I, I preached the gospel the first time, when I strolled into your town, I came preaching, he says, in much fear and trembling. Why was he fearful? Why was he trembling? Well, this is because he knew the message of Jesus was foolishness to the world. And oftentimes when Paul would come into town, he would cause trouble, right? Remember our study through the book of Acts. It seemed that every time that Paul showed up in a town, there began to be controversy and it would result in him being beaten, mocked, ridiculed, and then either in prison or run out of town. And usually that running out of town was him running away so that none of this would happen. Now while we don't fear... He said, I don't think we do. Fear beatings and imprisonments. We do fear rejection and ridicule, don't we? I'm sure we'd all like to say with Paul, I am not ashamed of the gospel. We've just heard two wonderful testimonies of God's grace through Anna and Charlie. And we all celebrate these things. It's, it's easy to do so in the midst of friends, right? But when we go outside those doors, it's a different story. Because the world doesn't receive, doesn't clap at the, at the message of God's grace in our lives. The truth is, is, I think we feel ashamed at times, which consequently silences us. Why is this? Why is it that we feel that? Why is it when we, we, we know we're maybe having a conversation with somebody, and we're like, I, I, 
I think this could go to like sharing the gospel. And that's right when the anxiety begins to happen, right? Have you ever been there? You ever been on a plane? And, and you begin to feel, what's this person going to think? Why is this? Well, we live in a world that's increasingly hostile to the claims of Christianity. We are. And we know that to proclaim the truths of Christ will not only bring ridicule, but disdain. This world is opposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And none of us wants to be viewed as some extremist, do we? I don't. I don't want to be viewed as an extremist on par with the KKK or some other hate group. But often when Christians are standing up for the gospel as is expounded in Scripture, that is exactly the picture is painted of us. None of us want to be associated with those kind of people. And certainly shouldn't be. And yet if we take God at his word and call people to turn from their sins and put their faith in Christ, this is exactly how we'll be construed. These are the, the categories that we'll be thrown into. And as a result, numerous churches, pastors, and so-called Christians are abandoning the historic doctrines of Christianity held by God's people for over 2,000 years. It's as if, oh, we just figured it out that God wasn't saying these things. Oh, we just figured it out that Jesus isn't the only way. Oh, we just figured it out that God doesn't care or have anything to say about our, our human sexuality or our gender identity. We've just figured it out that, oh, Paul just wasn't sophisticated. Or, or, or Jesus, he was a man of his era and his time. I loved what Charlie said in his testimony. And I encourage you to get to know Charlie and his story. But how he believes that the, all 66 love letters uh, are, are entirely true and without error. That's not some American recent phenomenon. That is the understanding that Christians and God's people have always understood. And if you go outside of our sophisticated world and you go on mission trips and you begin to, to meet with Christians, if you were to ask them, do you think the Bible contains some error and is it mistaken in places? They would look at you and say, like, why would you ever think that? But yet, Christians are beginning to go that way because they're feeling the pressure the cultural pressure. And I, I don't want to empathize with you, those of you who feel it. I certainly feel it. The pressure's real. And it's going to heighten the more and more so-called evangelical leaders, speakers, authors, and personalities, i.e. people that you've read and, and maybe you, you've, you've trusted, begin to give in. And when this happens, this is being ashamed of the gospel. The Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy. This is the end of Paul's life. And Paul is in prison. He is about to be uh, beheaded for the gospel which he preaches. And he writes to his, his, his disciple in the faith, Timothy. And he says to him, Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor me his prisoner. Brothers and sisters, the pressure has always been there. It's 
always been there. This isn't something new. The pressure just comes at different angles, different ways of trying to silence the gospel. This is one reason I'm glad we're working through the book of Romans. We are living in a time where God's people cannot be wishy-washy. Rather, we must stand firm on solid ground. We must have firm footing, having confidence in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We must have our confidence in it. We must be able to stand firm on it, not wavering, even though we feel these pressures. Otherwise, as the scripture says, we'll be like children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Brothers and sisters, Christians, believers who have come in together here at Oak Park, we must be sure in the scriptures so that we're not taken captive by the ideas of the world which are in hostility toward God. So in light of such a danger and the temptation that all of us at some level feel, the temptation to be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, how can we fight against it? How can we resist being ashamed of the gospel? How can we get to the place where Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel? Well, I see in this passage three truths that I want to comfort us with. Three elements that if, if you were sitting down with me in my office and said, Chase, how, how do I not be ashamed of the gospel? I'd take us to this passage. And I said, there's three things I want you to see. I want us to see. I want us to press into our lives. I want us to have a solid grip upon so that when we feel the pressure, when we begin to, to waffle, we won't. We won't cave. That doesn't mean we're jerks when we speak, by the way. Not being ashamed of the gospel isn't being um, uh, abrasive. But it is lovingly, graciously speaking the truth. So what are these three things? Verses 16 through 17, we're going to see that the answer to this question all centers on faith or trust in the gospel. Do we, at the end of the day, truly trust this message? If we don't, we'll be ashamed of it. If we don't grasp its meaning, don't grasp the significance, we'll waver. And so as we commit ourselves to the study of Paul's summary of the book of Romans, I want to exhort us to, one, trust in the gospel's power to save, two, in its revelation of justice, and three, its promise of life. So if I were to say, how do we not be ashamed of the gospel? What, what do we see here in this passage as Paul supports that claim? He supports it with the power of the gospel, the revelation of the gospel, and the promise of the gospel. Let's look at this first one here in verse 16. Paul boldly declares that he's not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Why is he not ashamed? For it is the power of God for salvation. That's the reason, that's the basis by which he can say, I'm not ashamed. And if you were to go to verse 15, he says it before here, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. 
Why is it eager? Because I'm not ashamed of it. Well, why aren't you ashamed of it? Because it's the power of God. You see the logic by which he is articulating his thoughts? In other words, Paul knows that the means by which people are delivered from the power of sin and death is the good news of Jesus Christ. This good news, brothers and sisters, is unlike any other message out there. Because it has the power to produce the response that it demands. It has the power to produce the response that it demands. The gospel message is, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And that message permeates our hearts and actually delivers the response it commands. We're going to see that here in just a minute. The gospel calls people out of sin and death. Come out of darkness. Rise from the dead. Just as Jesus walked to the tomb of Lazarus, says, Lazarus, come out. So the gospel speaks to our dead hearts and says, be alive. Apart from the gospel, people are dead in their trespasses and sins, the scripture says. I was talking to my children last night. It's usually my first test run before I I preach on Sunday. We're talking about these things. I said, you've been to a funeral before, right? I said, yeah. I said, you've seen a body in the casket. I said, yeah. I said, what happens if you shake that body? And you cry over it and you, you talk and scream. Is anything going to happen? They said, no. No, daddy. Why? Because they're dead. So the Bible describes our spiritual state in the same way. We're dead. Dead people can't make themselves alive. We need someone to breathe life into us, and that's the gospel. That's the gospel. And I want you to see that sinners are unable to respond to God. Let's let's go to uh, Romans chapter 8. Like I said, verses 16 and 17 are a summary statement of what Paul is going to expound upon in great depth and detail. And so I'm going to kind of give us sneak peeks, if you will. Um, uh, to some of the things that he's going to expound upon. But if you go to Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 5, Paul begins to explain why we need the power of the gospel in our life. Look at what he says, beginning in verse 5 of chapter 8. For those who live according to their flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Now here's what, let me stop there and explain. The flesh is a domain, it's a power, it's a, a category of unbelief. This is who we were apart from being Christians. Before we knew Christ, we set our mind on the flesh and the things of the flesh. Moving on. But those who live according to the Spirit, that's Christians, set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Okay, so he's he's got two categories of people. Those of the flesh, those of the Spirit. Those of the flesh are unbelievers. Those of the Spirit are believers. Verse 6. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. If you're in that category, you're set on death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh, notice, is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. 
Something we don't realize and think about often is the depths of our sin. That how far our sin has separated us from a holy and righteous God. And it's not as if maybe the picture is that we somehow sin flung us to the other side of the room and God's over here and we're longing to get there, but sin just keeps getting in the way. That's not the picture. The picture is we're set on the flesh, God's over here, and we say, I want nothing to do with him and I'm running the other way. Therefore, we cannot please him. We want nothing to do with him by default. We're hostile to God. We're at war with him. And so if by default we're indebted to the flesh, meaning we're in hostility to God, not submitting to his law, unable to please him, how does one move from the category of unbeliever under the realm of the flesh, hostile, under the realm of the Spirit, at peace with God. How do, how do they move? If I'm running and I want nothing to do with Him, how do I all of a sudden get over here? That's where the gospel comes in. Let me show you verse 9, though. You, however, he's speaking to Christians, so those of the flesh are unbelievers, but you, Oak Park, however, are not in the flesh. You're in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. That's how, I want you to see, that's the Christian. That's you and me. So if by default we're indebted to the flesh, sinful flesh, that it has us dead in our sins, how, how do we become alive to God? Jeremiah, the prophet, asked this question in a similar way, just, I think, in a more memorable way, actually. He says this to rebellious Israel. He says, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Have you ever thought about that? Can you change your skin? Can you change who you are? The world says you can. Or an animal change its spots no and he goes on he goes and he says then also can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil what's jeremiah getting after he's getting after the nature of humanity the reason you rebel against god O israel is because you haven't your nature has not been changed and so you are just as helpless as the Ethiopian who says, I want to be another nationality. You can't just do it. It's who you are. So what's Jeremiah contending? You cannot change your nature, and our nature by default is evil. Therefore, what's the solution? The solution only is that we are at the mercy of our maker, our God, to change us. And Paul in Romans tells us that the gospel has the power to do just that. It is the power of God that results, he says, if you come back to verse 16, for salvation. The gospel is effective. The gospel transfers individuals from the domain of darkness, of death and sin, the flesh, into the domain of the spirit, which is peace with God. 
Therefore, the gospel, brothers and sisters, doesn't just make salvation possible, but it affects salvation for those who are called. We saw this when we began the book of Romans in verses 6 through 7. Including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Verse 7, to those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Among the called, when the gospel comes, it affects life in us. It awakens us. I want you to see this more clearly again. Let's, let's go to Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. So if you just keep turning right, go through 1 and 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 Thessalonians. Thessalonica was a hostile environment for the Apostle Paul. It was one of the worst persecutions that he had when he came and preached the gospel. The Jews from there began to follow him wherever he went, and they were seeking to kill him. So he did not have much time with this congregation. But I want you to know how he understands what happened when he did preach the gospel to them. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4. Here, page is ruffling, so I'll give you time. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. Look at verse 6. And you became imitators us of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much Affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. What does Paul say? How did we know that the gospel came in power among you? Because you believed. And you believed in an environment of great affliction and trouble. You saw what happened when I came preaching the gospel. It seemed, and I encourage you to go back to the book of Acts and find Paul's account with Thessalonica. It's as if no one really believes, just a handful. But yet, as Paul is, is beaten and he's run out of town, there's a church that started. How did that happen? Because he preached the gospel. And the gospel changed hearts. But what message does that? Someone comes to town, says, hey, I have the gospel of life, and results in getting beaten and almost dead. And then everyone says, I want that. How do you explain that? It's the power of God to salvation. So coming back to Romans... This is what Paul means when he says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It enacts power, life, it causes you to believe. So how, how do I know if God is working in power in the gospel? Well, you believe and trust it. How do we, how do we know that the gospel is doing its work in us? Because he's gathering people who believed and trusted it. 
And that's happening not only here, but it's happening in in many of our churches here in, in, in southern Indiana. It's happening all over the globe in different settings, in different environments, in different cultures, with different pressures to be ashamed, but yet people still believe. How does that happen? Well, how does one rise from the dead? By the word of God. The same power that raised Christ from the dead, the scriptures tells us, is the same power that rose your dead, lifeless heart. That's what happens in the gospel when the gospel is rightly proclaimed. And Paul says that this salvation is for everyone who believes. And he says to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Just a brief comment here on that phrase. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. One level we need to see here, Paul preached the gospel to everyone without exception. So here's where we balance those, those, those deep truths of God's sovereignty, calling, and election. Doesn't change the fact that we preach to all people. That's not our business to try to figure out what, how that's all sorted out in the background. We just know that God's doing it, and that when those who are called by His grace hear the gospel, they will respond. So, so we don't go around and say, well, I'm, I'm not going to share the gospel because you're not, you might not be chosen or something. We don't talk like that. Paul doesn't do that. He preaches to all people. But there's something significant here that I want to show you that we'll, we'll unpack later in Romans. But this is where he says, to the Jew first. Why does he say that? The gospel is for everyone who believes, to the Jew first, then the Greek. This is because the good news that we proclaim was promised to Israel. The Jews are God's chosen people of all the nations by which he would be the instrument to bring blessing to the nations. Began with Abraham in you and your offspring, the nations will be blessed. This has been God's plan, his program to bring blessing and redemption to the world. And when Jesus has come, he came as a Jew because he is of the Jews. Salvation is of the Jews, Paul will say in Romans chapter 3. And so there's a sense in which Israel was given priority to receive God's deliverance through Jesus. Not just chronologically, but theologically. This message is is for them. Paul will say in in chapter 3, let's go there, verse 1. What advantage has the Jew? We don't think like that often because none of us are Jews. But what advantage then is of the Jew? What what good did that do them to be the chosen people of God? Because none of them, by and large, not none of them, but most of them do not believe. Or what's the value of circumcision, which marked someone a Jew? He says much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. The word of God came to them. They were raised up. Their whole nation, their whole livelihood, every element of their, from their clothes that they wore to the way they, they, they married to the way they tilled their, their, their land, everything taught them about the Lord Jesus Christ. Taught them about Yahweh, their creator. 
And so it's very much akin to children who raise up in the church. They're to benefit because they hear these things. They're under the preaching of the word. They're seeing it lived out in a way that the world does not see. Here's a good reminder, which we'll learn for the Jews as well. With great privilege comes great responsibility. It's a good thing that God's grace didn't just stop with them, but also to us. We're the Greek. We're the nations. Paul will expand upon this more in chapters 9 through 11. Let's come back to kind of the heart of this passage. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. What implications does that have to, on us as a church family? If God's power for salvation is only found through the proclamation of the gospel, brothers and sisters, we have to give ourselves to that ministry. This means that we don't just live the gospel, we orally proclaim the gospel. We must speak the gospel. And brothers and sisters, we can get caught up in very good things and not be doing gospel ministry. Churches can care for the poor. Scriptures call us to that. We minister to the sick. We provide meals for the football team. We have fall festivals. We have VBS. We can have community groups and fellowships events. We can have great music and we can have a a pleasing experience for someone to come on, on Sunday morning. And all these things we want to do. But if we do not tell people the gospel as it is revealed in the scripture, there is no power in what we do. Absolutely none. We can be all about things and say, Jesus' name, Jesus' name. But if we aren't explaining the gospel, there's no power. No life change. It's like going to that dead body in the casket and doing a dance and having all this going on and shaking them and screaming and being as persuasive as you can. But if you do not have life, they will not rise. And so, brothers and sisters, we must not be ashamed of the gospel because lies are only changed when the gospel of Jesus Christ is explained and declared when Jesus death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed then and only then will God work his power to save it's the only way it happens so if we want to be about seeing change in people's lives we cannot be ashamed of the gospel because it's their only hope it's the only means by which Blind eyes will see, deaf ears will hear, hard hearts will be softened. It is the only means. So when we believe this about the gospel, we won't be ashamed of it. Furthermore, we'll not be ashamed of the gospel when we trust in its revelation of justice. Look at what Paul says in verse 17. For in it, what's the it? It's the gospel, okay? For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. Paul's summarizing in a phrase, God's act of salvation in Christ. And we need to kind of ask ourselves, what does he mean here by the righteousness of God? 
It's a phrase we speak about, but I don't know if we could maybe give a definition of. What's the righteousness of God? And we could give maybe three different answers to this. We could speak of the righteousness of God as God's righteousness revealed in the gospel, namely his character, his holiness. When we preach the gospel, we're, we're, uh, we're explaining who God is, that he's holy, righteous, sinless, he's light. Another way to understand this might be that righteousness comes from God, or the righteousness that comes from God is made known in the gospel, namely that God's righteousness is given to sinners through the gospel. Speaking of the great exchange that Christ took our sin and we take his righteousness. Third way, and and actually I think a, a more comprehensive way to understand this, is that when Paul speaks of the righteousness of God being revealed in the gospel, he's speaking of God's act of righteousness in the cross of of Christ. Meaning, this is the definitive action of God to provide salvation for his people and to make his name known among the nations. I want to show you this. Let's, let's, um, Let's go to Psalm 98. So in your Old Testament, I don't know if this trick still works, but Split it down the middle. You should be in Psalms or Proverbs. If you're in Proverbs, go to the left. If you're in Job, go to the right. And you'll be in Psalm and go to chapter 98. I think Paul has this Psalm in mind. I want to show you this. Which helps us understand when he says, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Psalm 98, verses 1 through 3. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for He has done marvelous things. His right hand and His holy arm have worked salvation for Him. Notice that God's doing something. What is the psalmist rejoicing in? What is the song about? What are the marvelous things? He has done salvation. Verse 2, the Lord has made known his salvation, but look, he has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. The psalmist begins to talk about this great deliverance of God, which shows his righteousness in all the nations. He goes on, he has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the earth have seen the salvation of our God. So what's the point of that passage I want you to see? I want you to see that salvation, God's acting to deliver his people, is defined as the righteousness of God. Jump down to verse 7. See the other side of the righteous act of God. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands and let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord. For he comes to judge the earth and he will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. He couches here the righteousness of God as salvation on the one hand, but judgment on the other. Brothers and sisters, when we think about the gospel, in it, 
We are declaring God's definitive act to vindicate his name before all the earth. We often think of the gospel as merely about us. And there's great benefit for us. But what we're going to learn is that the gospel was God declaring to the world that he is the creator, that he is the one who will make all things right. And that has some great benefits for those who believe, a la salvation. And it has some great worry for those who do not believe. That will mean judgment. Let's go back to Romans, and I want you to see how Paul develops this in Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. So the righteousness of God, I want you to think, is an action. God did something in history to redeem his name, if you want to, among humanity. Paul expounds what that looks like, beginning in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. You see him talking about this act of God, if we've defined it correctly, has now been manifested apart from, you could say, the Old Testament. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Speaks of it again, verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So what is the righteousness of God? It is God's saving act in the cross of Jesus Christ by which all sinners can be made right with God. It's the cross. In the resurrection, look at verse 24. We're justified, meaning we're, we're declared to be in the right. We'll talk about that here in a minute. By his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. Jesus, brothers and sisters, on the cross purchased you from the realm of the flesh that we talked about earlier. Of the realm of sin and death and Satan's rule. You were in slavery, you were bondage to him, and there was nothing you could do. But God's definitive act, his righteousness, to, to redeem his name among all the nations has made salvation for us. Verse 25, he explains this a little bit more. Whom God put forth, Jesus, he put him forth as a, big word, propitiation by his blood. What does that mean? Satisfaction. Jesus on the cross satisfied the righteous judgment of God for all who believe. He drank the wrath of God in full on the cross, absorbing our guilt and our shame in himself. At the end of verse 25. To be received by faith, this was to show God's righteousness. So the act of the cross showed God's righteousness because in his for divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. What's he talking about here? Previously, and, and there's some sense this is true today, God is passing over sins. What do we mean by that? Well, those who do not trust him and believe in him are still alive. 
before you became a Christian, he didn't just strike you dead. And Paul is saying that in the cross, God let the world know, oh, I'm not just overlooking sin. Oftentimes people think they take the kindness of God as a license to live for themselves. Well, if God was not uh, pleased with my life, why does he let me succeed? Paul saying in Romans chapter 2, we've confused the kindness of God, which is lead a, to lead us to repentance. But look at what he says as we close in verse 26. The cross was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he, God, might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. So this act of God at the cross, hang in there with me. I know, this is heavy, right? This act of God in the cross by which Christ was put forward as a sacrifice to satisfy the wrath of God, showed God to be just. He takes sin seriously and he will judge sin. But also showed him to be the gracious justifier to those who have faith. How does that work? I like what one theologian says here that I think will help us understand this. In faith, so think about you trusting Jesus. In faith, one takes the side of God in his claim against oneself, giving God justice. So by faith, I'm looking to the cross and saying, I deserve the cross. My sin deserves your wrath. I deserve hell, Lord. I confess that to you. So that's one side of it. At the same time, one takes hold of God's gift in Christ, whom he has put forth as an atonement, and in whom he has taken the side of the sinner. So on the one hand, I, I side with God against myself when I confess my trust in the gospel, that I deserve death for my sins. And in doing so, I lay hold of the gift of eternal life that is in Christ. So that's what Paul means when he says that he might be the just and the justifier through the cross. That's what happened and has been revealed through the gospel. That's good news, brothers and sisters. And if we get that, we won't be ashamed. This leads us to our last point, which is really just a response then to these great truths, we trust in the gospel's promise of life. Come back to verse 17. This gift found in the gospel is from faith for faith, he says. It's kind of an ambiguous phrase. From, for faith, or from faith for faith. But the point is, is that salvation, if you want to put it this way, begins and ends with faith. You must trust this message. As Paul said in Galatians, as Pastor Nathan read, whoever relies on works, if that's what you're banking on, you're under the curse. But this message, God's deliverance, His definitive act, what do we rely on? The cross. I'm I begin that way from faith, and this leads me to faith. I'm always trusting. This means, brothers and sisters, we never graduate from the gospel. We're always trusting. 
We're never looking to ourselves and saying, okay, I believed, now I'm being perfected on my own strength. That's not how it works. No, when you feel the guilt of shame and your sin, you by faith trust God's definitive act on the cross and saying my sin was taken care of there. And as a result, that gratitude causes you to worship and live for him. Notice here that Paul supports this, though, with the citation of Scripture. He says, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul's quoting from the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk was a prophet in the Old Testament who lamented to God in prayer because Israel was not following him. Habakkuk prayed and cried out to God. He says, God, deal with Israel's sins. Deal with your people's sins. They are they're committing idolatry. They are living in sin of all various sorts. And as Habakkuk prays to God, God answers his prayer by saying that he's raising up the Chaldeans, another nation, but this nation was even more godless than Israel. And Habakkuk is like, Lord, no, no, no. Lord, how can you say that you're righteous if you're going to use a wicked nation to somehow deal with your people's sin? How is that going to work? God doesn't say that he will not deal with the Chaldeans' sin. But he responds with this phrase to Habakkuk. This is how I'm going to deal with it. The righteous will live by faith. In other words, God says to Habakkuk, judgment is coming. It is sure and it is swift. Judgment is coming and the only way to survive the judgment that I'm bringing to deal with sin is to trust in me. That's what the message was. And in so doing, God says to Habakkuk, you'll live. You want to survive the Chaldeans? Trust me. I don't know what you're doing, Lord. Trust me. And what we see is that God delivered the righteous by faith. That his salvation first came through judgment, and he carried his people through it by faith. In the same way, salvation has come through judgment in Jesus Christ. And if you and I are going to escape the judgment that is to come, by which he reckons the world, we must do it by faith. I can't help but think of the words of our Lord Jesus in Mark chapter 8, where Jesus says, Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Maybe that's what Paul's thinking of as he says to the Romans, I'm not ashamed of this gospel. Oak Park, I'm confident that we are those who are not ashamed. Yes, we may have those weak moments, those times by which we feel the pressure, but I'm confident by God's grace that we trust this message, that we trust in the power of the gospel to affect salvation, not only in our own lives, but in all those called by God. That we trust in the gospel's revelation of justice whereby God declared that he would make all things right through the cross and the resurrection of Christ. 
And finally, that we trust in God's promise of life in the face of the coming judgment upon all the earth. And we do that by faith. One way we express our trust in these precious truths is through partaking in the Lord's Supper. And so those who are going to come forward, I ask that you would do so. And Chris and the music team, if you'd come and prepare us to sing. When we partake in the Lord's Supper, we're saying, I trust in the cross. I rely on the cross. That your blood was spilt for me. That your body was given for me. And I do not rely on anything else. As we get ready to partake in the Lord's Supper and sing these songs, let me say that, that this Lord's Supper, this communion, is only for those who have expressed their faith through the waters of baptism. And So if you're here this morning and, and you haven't trusted Christ, or if you say, I believe, but you have not been obedient through, through baptism, I, I ask that, that you would let the plight pass. Scriptures have strict warnings against those who, who partake in the cup or eat of the bread in an unworthy manner that is not reflective of, of Christ. I ask that you let that plight pass, and at the end of the service, come find me. I'll be right here under that screen to my left, your right. And if you want to trust Christ, you want to be baptized, you want to partake in this supper next time, we'll tell you how that can happen. We'd be honored to speak with you. So this time we're going to partake in the, the bread and we're going to sing Jesus, thank you. Is that right? Oh, all I have is Christ. We're going to sing all I have is Christ. <laughs>